0: Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 133, a genuine, bona fide, non-electrified monorail. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, we're talking about an early proposal to solve Boston's mass transit problems. You may think taking the T's painful today, but back in the days of horse-drawn streetcars, public transportation was slow, inefficient, and frequently snarled in downtown traffic. In the 1880s, proposals for elevated railways competed with subway proposals for attention and public funding. Then an ambitious inventor stormed onto the scene with a groundbreaking proposal for a monorail. He even went as far as building a full-scale, mile-long test track in East Cambridge, showing that the monorail worked. If it hadn't been for bad luck and bad politics, we might all be taking monorails instead of today's red and orange lines. But before we talk about the Meg's monorail... It's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is another podcast. Greater Boston is high on the shortlist of my favorite podcasts, and it's the only fiction podcast I currently listen to, what they'd call an audio drama. If you're listening to our show, you probably love not only history but also Boston, which makes you the perfect prospect for Greater Boston. It's set in a slightly fictionalized, historically informed version of our city, where the streets of the North End are permanently sticky from the molasses flood, where the roller coasters at Wonderland can still scare you half to death, and where a garbage fire on Spectacle Island has been burning for decades. The first season starts with a series of seemingly disconnected stories centering around a single family. But as it moves along, the storylines slowly weave together into a tightly crafted tapestry, And they spiral outward to include dozens of central characters and to encompass an elaborately constructed world that takes in not only all of greater Boston, but also occasional side trips to Alaska, to Oregon, and even to the mythical city of Atlantis. In this version of Boston, the citizens are considering a ballot initiative that would allow the Red Line to secede and form its own independent city. In this version of Boston, a dead man becomes one of the most important characters after his soul is trapped in a crystal ball. And in this version of Boston, a Trumpian figure has risen in response to a series of terrorist attacks that harken back to the Boston Tea Party and the Great Molasses Flood. The show just wrapped up its third season, meaning you have 38 full episodes plus about 25 bonus episodes to catch up on. In the most recent story arc, the slightly sci fi world of Greater Boston has served as a backdrop for a narrative that seems to be pulled directly from a contemporary world. It takes on Boston's housing crisis, racist redlining, Gentrification and rising authoritarianism, while maintaining a playful sense of humor and never seeming to preach to the listener. And this is a show that you have to listen to from the beginning, since it's slowly spread out to encompass at least 20 main characters with deep backstories and an elaborately constructed world. If it's not clear, I am an unabashed fan of this show. We'll have a link to their website in this week's show notes, or you can just search your favorite podcast app for Greater Boston. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a talk about a transportation method you might use if you're not taking the red line or an experimental monorail. On Thursday, June 13th, cycling historian Lawrence J. Finison will be giving a talk at the Copley Square Library about the resurgence of cycling in the 20th century. Here's how the library website describes the event. At the end of the 19th century, cycling's popularity surged in the Boston area, but by 1900, the trend faded. Within the next few decades, automobiles became commonplace and roads were refashioned to serve them. Lawrence J. Finneson presents the evolution and renaissance that local bicycling witnessed in the 1970s, as concerns over physical and environmental health coalesced. Whether cyclists hit the roads on their way to work or to work out, went off-road in the mountains or to race via cyclocross and BMX, or took part in charity rides, biking was back in a major way. Finneson traces the city's cycling history chronicling the activities of environmental and social justice activists, stories of women breaking into male-dominated professions by becoming bike messengers and mechanics, and challenges faced by African-American cyclists. Making use of newspaper archives, newly discovered records of local biking organizations, and interviews with Boston-area bicyclists and bike builders, Boston's 20th-century bicycling renaissance brings these voices and battles back to life. The talk begins at 6 p.m. in the Commonwealth Salon. Registration is required but free. We'll have a link to the information you need in this week's show notes. Now, before we start talking monorail, we want to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We love researching and recording a weekly podcast, and we hope you enjoy listening to it. Along with the time we put into the show, we put money into web hosting and security, our podcast feed host, and the online tools we use to polish up our recordings. Supporting us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month is the best way to help us offset those costs. Plus, there are special rewards at the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels, or as we call them, the Amelia Earhart, Lewis Hayden, and Abigail Adams levels. Just go to patreon.com/hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Boston in the late 19th century was absolutely booming. The population had been swelled by immigration, and the bounds of the city were being expanded by both landfill and annexation. Railroads had opened up commerce with outlying areas, and our water and sewage infrastructure had finally been upgraded to support this growing population. However, the city's rapid growth and economic success moved faster than the city's street grid could be modernized. While many residents of Boston still lived within walking distance of their jobs, the new railways offered commuted rates for day passengers without baggage, allowing workers to begin commuting from the suburbs. Private carriages, hackney cabs, and heavy wagons were pulled by horses. By 1888, the West End Street Railway was operating thousands of streetcars, some drawn by horses and others propelled by electric motors powered by overhead wires. While streetcars enabled people to get around, they did little to alleviate congestion, as they ran on the already crowded streets. The section of Tremont Street between Scully Square and Boylston Street was pure havoc. It carried shoppers to and from the main shopping districts, as well as office workers and government officials headed to Beacon Hill. By the 1880s, streetcars would pack Tremont Street end-to-end at rush hour, and people said that one could walk from Tremont Temple to the Masonic Temple on their roofs without ever setting foot on the ground. The city was desperate to find ways to get some of this traffic off the streets, and was considering two competing proposals. One of these proposals was a subway. The idea of running an underground railroad wasn't entirely new. London had some steam trains running underground since 1863, and it was in the process of constructing an electrified subway that would open in 1890. Subways had the benefit of moving traffic off the city streets, while not adding a visible blemish to the cityscape. Out of sight, out of mind. Not everyone was thrilled about moving transit underground. Opponents even formed an anti-subway league that gathered signatures on petitions against the subway and planted editorials in the Boston Post with titles like Hideous Germs Lurk in the Underground Air. They claimed that there was a new strain of subway microbes that was poised to strike subway commuters. At the time, the underground world was viewed with a great deal of suspicion. That's where rats and snakes came from, and where sewage and dead bodies went too. It was the realm of the devil of unknown germs and evil spirits. As Charles Bond put it, the underground was seen as the realm of Lucifer himself, inhabited by lost souls, moldering corpses, strange forms of animal life, and noxious vapors. The other contending proposal was to build elevated railroad tracks over city streets. This system would not have to contend with Lucifer or lost souls, and it had some more concrete benefits as well. Like a subway, an elevated railway would take rapid transit off the street, freeing space for other modes of transportation. And, unlike a subway, elevated tracks relied on tried-and-true construction techniques, rather than large-scale excavations using newly developed technologies. Another huge benefit to an elevated railway was the ability to use existing railroad passenger cars and steam engines. Steam power was incredibly difficult to adapt for use in a subway because of the noxious coal smoke. And many proposed tunnels were too small or turned too tightly to accommodate existing passenger cars. Even the Boston subway, when it was first built a few years later, would be built for small electric streetcars, not steam locomotives. For many observers, the downside to an elevated railway was its intrusion into city life. The model that was being entertained for Boston was known as the New York System because the earliest elevated railways had started operating in NYC in the early 1870s. In this system, at least two railroad tracks ran parallel to one another on each line, and they ran on a solid decking built over the street. Some of our listeners will remember the Elevated Orange Line, which ran down Washington Street until 1987, which was an example of a modernized New York system elevated railway. It was supported by iron towers on either side of the street that held up huge girders running across the street, which in turn supported the decking that the tracks ran on. The New York system was practical, but it was ugly, and it blocked out the sun, making the streets below dark and unwelcoming. One man believed he had a solution that would allow him to build an elevated railroad that avoided the downsides of the New York system. Joe Meggs, now in his 40s, had been an inventor since his teens. He was originally from Nashville, as his 1907 obituary describes. Joseph Vincent Meggs was born in Nashville, Tennessee in 1840, the son of returned Jonathan Meggs, a distinguished lawyer of whom President Lincoln was especially fond, and who was nominated by him for the bench of the U.S. Supreme Court. The mother of Joe Meggs was Sally Keyes Love, a Tennessee belle, a cultured woman who lived to perform noble deeds. She was heiress to several slaves, which in the course of events fell to her legal share, but which she refused to take, saying that she did not own them or anyone else, and so she set them free of their own accord. This was long before the war. Joe tinkered as a child, finding ways to improve the family's cook stove and creating his own printing press. At the age of 14, he was issued his first patent for an improvement to railroad couplings, but it was the Civil War that indirectly led him to pursue inventing full-time. An 1882 Boston Globe profile summarizes his wartime experience. The entire family, casting their fortunes with the Union side, went to Washington, and young Meggs was for one year a corresponding clerk in the War Department. But this did not suit his active, listless temperament. He was accordingly commissioned as an officer in the Army, with which he remained through the war, accomplishing, among other things, the organization of a colored battery, which was the wonder of all who witnessed its workings. You might think that an artillery captain, in the middle of occupying a hostile state, would be too busy for academic pursuits. But not our Captain Miggs. In the closing months of the war, he worked out a design for a new repeating rifle. Somehow his sketches reached Union General Benjamin Butler, who was from Lowell. Butler invited the young captain to join him in Lowell after the war, where Meggs became one of the first employees of Butler's United States Cartridge Company, which was one of the largest manufacturers of arms and ammunition through World War I. Meggs was trained as a patent lawyer, but he was more interested in the practical side of innovation, eventually being awarded 22 patents, including designs for a school desk, a reclining chair, and an automatic fishing pole. In 1873, Joseph V. Meggs filed for a patent on certain improvements in cars, locomotives, and trucks adapted for use on elevated railways. This was the first iteration of the Meggs system, which would be further refined and perfected during development in the 1880s. At a legislative committee hearing, Captain Meggs claimed that his system was superior to any yet known to the world, that it is best adapted to the streets of Boston, that it can be built at 50% the cost of any other system, that it will not impede the free passage of light and air, that it is absolutely safe, derailment being impossible and that it is capable of a higher rate of speed and can start and stop more quickly than is possible under any other system. This new system looked nothing like a streetcar or a railroad passenger car. It was designed as a monorail, so it was elevated off the street while there was no need for decking over the streets that would block out the sun. Instead, a single line of vertical posts would run down the sidewalk on each side of the street, leaving the air above the street itself clear. Here's how the July 1886 issue of Scientific American describes the tracks used by the Meigs monorail. The way upon which the train runs consists of a single iron girder four feet in depth for each span, placed over the center line of the posts. The girder carries an upper track beam and a lower track beam, upon the sides of each of which the rails, four in number, are placed. The two bearing rails, which carry the load of the train, consist of angle irons placed upon the outer-upper edge of wooden stringers upon the lower track beam. Two vertically placed rails for balancing or friction wheels are carried by the upper track beam. The usual length of post, 24 feet, would give a clear headway of 14 feet, 4 feet being taken up by the truss, and 6 feet forming the foundation. So the track consisted of a row of posts with a single girder 14 feet overhead that carried two pairs of rails. A report written by an independent civil engineer in 1886 helps describe how the system worked, but we will include plenty of pictures in the show notes this week. The wheels that bear the weight, instead of being placed in the ordinary upright position, are fixed at an angle of about 45 degrees from the vertical plane. The bearing face of the wheels being grooved to fit down upon the angle iron supporting rail in the upper corners of the lower boom of the track girder, so as to bear both downward and inward on the rail. The locomotive has some minor novelties of construction besides the truck arrangement above alluded to, not necessary here to describe, but its main features are the horizontal driving wheels which pull the train by side pressure on the rails of the upper boom of the girder and the hydraulic attachment by which the pressure or adhesion of these driving wheels upon the rails is created, maintained, and regulated at will by the engine driver. If you can, picture the single girder running down the top of a single line of posts. Now picture a train that straddles the girder with wheels on either side. A set of wheels that is angled inward toward the girder carries the train's weight, while above those horizontal wheels grip the top of the rails and provide power. Again, we'll have pictures in the show notes because this train is like nothing else you've ever seen. Besides the functional differences from a normal locomotive set, it was also cosmetically different. That Scientific American article describes how a cylindrical steam locomotive pulled a train of cylindrical passenger cars. The framing of the body is of light iron ribs bent in a circle, filled in by panels covered with rich upholstering, which covers all the interior. The exterior is sheathed with paper and copper. The cylindrical portion is 10 feet 8.5 inches in diameter. While adding to the strength, this form is expected to diminish the wind resistance fully one-third. The interior of the car is light, roomy, and pleasing to the eye. The seats are upholstered like the rest of the car, and comfort and luxury have been carefully studied in every detail. At each window is a specially designed device for securing ventilation without the annoyance caused by dust. Meggs believed he had a solution to Boston's rapid transit woes, but he had to convince not only the city, but the state legislature. He went on a protracted publicity campaign, publishing a book on his system, writing letters to editors, and taking miniature models of his monorail to presentations in front of any group that would have him. A blurb in a February 1882 issue of the Harvard Crimson reads like one of our upcoming historical events. The elevated railway system, as invented by Captain Joe V. Meggs, will be explained to the public by working models, stereopticon views, etc., at Lyceum Hall, Monday evening, February 20th, at 7.30 o'clock. The public are earnestly invited to attend, as it will be one of the most interesting addresses ever given in Cambridge. Ladies and gentlemen are both invited to attend. Admission free. After years of arguing, the legislature approved a state charter for Meggs to form an elevated railway company in 1884. But there was one condition. He would have to build at least a mile of test track and run a successful test of his system. The July 1886 issue of Scientific American explains... The Cambridge test track was made necessary by a section in the Act of the Massachusetts Legislature, authorizing the incorporation of the Meg's Elevated Railway Company, which states that no location for tracks shall be petitioned for in the city of Boston until at least one mile of the road has been built and operated, nor until the safety and strength of the structure and the rolling stock and motive power shall have been examined and approved by the Board of Railroad Commissioners or by a competent engineer to be appointed by them. Over the coming year, Meggs filed for a new patent. This one covered his entire system, from the method of erecting posts, to the rails, switches, and wheels, to the cylindrical cars themselves. By early 1886, the East Cambridge Test Track was operational, and Meggs brought in a competent engineer, George Stark, to prepare a report for the Board of Railroad Commissioners. The structure has been erected wholly on made land, upon what was once the bed of Millers River and the mud underneath this made land is soft and deep. A rod of round iron, five-eighths of an inch in diameter, was easily forced down near the structure by one man in my presence, its entire length, 12 feet, without striking hard bottom. The difficulty of building a secure single-post structure on this foundation has, of course, been much greater than it would have been on ordinary solid land. Now, as a sidebar, I know Megs was building an engineering prototype, but I wonder if he was also trying to create just a bit of a thrill ride. In this next paragraph from the engineer's report, tell me the test track doesn't sound like a roller coaster. In addition to this natural difficulty, Captain Meggs has purposely introduced artificial obstacles in his track for the purpose of showing that he can run his trains around curves of less radius and on grades of greater elevation than are now practicable on ordinary steam motor railways and can safely pass horizontal or vertical angles in the track of very considerable deflection. One of his curves makes an entire semicircle with a 50-foot radius on a grade of 120 feet to the mile, and another turns nearly a quarter circle with a radius of 50 feet on a grade of 345 feet to the mile. The motive power and rolling stock submitted to my examination consists of a locomotive weighing about 30 tons, a tender weighing about 14 tons, and a passenger car weighing about 17 tons, making up a train of about 61 tons aggregate weight when empty. Excepting the distinctive running gear, or trucks, of this railway system, the general features of the motive power and rolling stock correspond to, or are supposed improvements upon, the locomotives and cars of ordinary steam railways. A cylindrical shape has been adopted for all the equipment, for which shape peculiar advantages are claimed as to the safety, convenience, and economy, and particularly as to offering less resistant surface to the wind. On April 29, 1893, the Cambridge Chronicle carried a brief piece detailing what's believed to be the last test run of the Meg's monorail. The engine and cars of the Meg's Elevated Railway, which have been in a dilapidated condition since the close of the establishment some two years ago, made a trial trip last week. How had such a promising system fallen so far, so fast? Things started to fall apart after a fire, which many believed to be an act of arson, destroyed a building and badly damaged the prototype passenger cars on the Cambridge test track. On February 4, 1887, Joe Meggs wrote, At 4 a.m., the night watchman reported that he saw flames issuing from the end of the car, and that the whole end of the building was in flames. A casual inspection of the building, which I have had photographed, proves that his statement is correct, and it is corroborated by the neighbors, and I am thus pained to be obliged to state that I believe the fire to be of an incendiary character, as do others who have seen it the fire put Megs in a difficult position of deciding whether to repair the damaged equipment. Without a working prototype, it was hard to advocate for more funding. But with limited capital, it might not make sense to repair a costly prototype. Both of these problems point out the disadvantages of the Megs' system. Though its champion believed he had worked out a superior system, the sheer unfamiliarity of the unique tracks and cars meant that skeptics had to see it to believe it. And unlike its two primary competitors the MEG system would require expensive, proprietary equipment. The proposed Boston subway system would use existing electrified streetcars, while elevated railways following the New York system could use existing locomotives and passenger cars. The Meg's system would have to be purpose-built, from the posts holding up the girders, to the tracks, to the wheels, to the seats in the passenger cars. Every piece would have to be custom-manufactured, and that promised to be extraordinarily expensive. A request Meg submitted to the legislature in 1888 asking for an amendment to his company charter highlights just how much trouble he was having raising operating capital. We have received the highest approval of your examining engineer after many months of patient and exhaustive tests, such as no other railway on earth could have stood. And after all of this, we find that we cannot go ahead and raise money like other railways. The burdensome charter we have received precludes it. We have made faithful trial to do so. In face of all this, capitalists declare that they cannot proceed to build the road under the charter, and the persons forming the Meg's Elevated Railway Company being unable to proceed otherwise were obliged to form a construction company under the general laws so as to raise money enough to carry out the requirements of your honorable body, to build a test track, rolling stock, and motive power to be submitted to your engineer. We have done all this and can proceed no further. The Megs company was eventually able to get their charter amended, but they were never able to convince investors that their system was superior to the competition. With their amended charter in hand, Megs erected a much more modest demonstration track in Boston in 1894. On July 18th, The Globe reported, People entering the city this morning from the north and going through Adams Square thought that the long-looked-for rapid transit was an actual thing of the present. A substantial post of iron with a section of horizontal girder stood in front of Sam Adams, and he regarded it with a pained expression, as if he could not understand the progression of the present age. Last night's late homegoers remembered as they went by this mushroom growth that it was not there when they passed through the square last night. There it stood like a sentinel, and it was finished, too. It had a neat little brick base with a granite curbing. Instead of a mile-long track with a working monorail... All the company could afford this time around was a single section of track, erected just about where Boston City Hall is now. Perhaps it was good publicity, but I don't think it kept the owners of the West End Street Railway up at night. In the end, however, Mother Nature was the straw that broke the camel's back. In March of 1888, a terrible storm swept through Boston. Known as the Snow Hurricane, it dumped up to 60 inches of snow on the region, killing over 400 people. Cities were paralyzed for weeks as carts, streetcars, and even railroads were immobilized while the snow was being cleared. In 1882, Meigs had expressed his utter contempt for the idea of a subway. All tunnels are ill-adapted for the purpose of rapid transit. They are inaccessible, are colder in summer and warmer in winter than the surface atmosphere, hence are condensers of moisture, therefore damp, dark, dingy, dirty, musty, and dangerous to health. All subways are very noisy, and it is impossible to ventilate them except at very great cost. These are the facts, no matter who has testified to the contrary. However, after the snow hurricane, the prospect of a subway that was not only always warmer in winter, but also completely protected from snow, began to seem like a pretty good idea. The subway became Boston's first rapid transit project, while Meg's was left to fight for scraps with the newly formed West End Street Railway Company which had consolidated ownership of the streetcar tracks throughout the city. It was not a fight that the Meggs Company would win. They eventually ran out of money, and they were forced to sell their charter to an investment group led by John Pierpont Morgan in April of 1896. In the meantime, construction began on the Tremont Street subway, and the West End Company signed a lease to operate the new subway for a period of 20 years. Then... In November of 1896, J.P. Morgan and his partners completed a merger between the West End Street Railway and the Boston Elevated Railway Company, which held the Megs Charter. A front-page headline in the Globe trumpeted, West End War Over. The streetcars, subway, and the potential elevated lines were now unified under a single management. The old Megs Charter was used for projects that probably horrified Joe Meggs. At one point, it had been proposed to use the Meigs Charter to build a second subway tunnel under Tremont Street to handle trolleys coming from Roxbury. So much for the claim that tunnels are ill-adapted for the purpose of rapid transit. After the J.P. Morgan takeover, an article in 1897 describes a new proposal to build an elevated rail line along the original MiG's right-of-way. The trunk line beginning at Dudley Street opposite Guild Block will run via Washington and as before stated, up Castle to Village Street, across the tracks of the Albany Road, over private property, and into the southerly incline of the subway. Through the subway toward Charlestown, over the new Charlestown Bridge, now under construction by the Transit Commission, up Main Street Charlestown to Sullivan Square. You may recognize Dudley to Sullivan Square as the original route of the Orange Line, before 1987. That route would be built using the New York system, decking over entire streets and blocking out the sun. However, the 1897 proposal was even more ambitious. Besides the old locations granted in what's familiarly known as the Meg's Charter, there will be new locations asked for. Another line, beginning at Brattle Square, Cambridge, is to be run over West Boston Bridge, up Cambridge Street, through Broden Square, Court Street, and Scully Square. The company offers to build a subway beginning at Joy Street on Cambridge Street, where the hill commences, and running under Bowdoin Square under the streets named and connecting with the subway in Scully Square, now under construction. That route might be familiar as the core of the Red Line, before it was eventually extended on both the North and South ends. So before Joe Meggs passed away in 1907, he saw his state charter get used to build a subway, which he always hated, and a New York system elevated train which he thought his own design superior to. In the meantime, he saw the elegant tracks and groundbreaking cylindrical trains of his Cambridge demonstration track dismantled and sold as scrap. Today, the site's occupied by a commuter rail maintenance yard and a Fairfield Inn on O'Brien Highway. For years, the only commemoration of the site of the MiG's monorail was a small plaque on a house front on a nearby side street. And now I think even the plaque is gone. To learn more about the Meigs monorail, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 133. We'll have links to a book written by Meigs, George Stark's report for the railroad commissioners, the 1885 patent on Meigs rail system, and the report in the July 1886 issue of Scientific American. And because the design's so hard to describe, we'll be sure to include plenty of diagrams and photographs of the monorail. We'll also have a link to the archive of MEGS papers at Yale and to a number of contemporary news articles. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and the Greater Boston Podcast, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we'd love to play it on the show. We are Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Google Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more. Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say... Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular app for listening to podcasts. If you subscribe on Apple, please consider rating and reviewing us. It helps us show up higher in the podcast rankings where people can find us more easily. If you write us a review, Drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is the best way to help somebody discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about the Goodridge decision and the birth of marriage equality.